Good morning, everyone. It is September 6th. Thursday, I think. Could be Thursday? Yeah, we believe it's Thursday. Uh, 7.45 in the morning. I have been for my run, and I'm making my tea. For the London Fog. Yeah, I didn't um, podcast yesterday, obviously. Um, I was still partly on day off yesterday. I worked a little bit, but um, my brain wasn't entirely with it yet, so I kind of took it easy on a number of fronts. Went all through the edit letter from Jenny, my editor at St. Martin's for the Orchid Throne, and then went through her, which I had read before, and I think I mentioned, I think it's really great edit letter, she's very insightful, um, and then I went through, she'd also marked up the document itself, um, and so she said, oh, I have some notes in the document, she mentioned that in her edit letter, so I Oh, okay. And, you know, and I've done that before, you know, and usually it's like a comma or missed word. It's a really funny thing when I'm, especially if I'm drafting very heavily, I, um, I'll use like the wrong word entirely. Mistakes that I would never make on a daily basis. Um, like I'll write um, N-O instead of K-N-O-W. I mean, really basic stuff. So it's clear, I think it's because my, I'm so deliberately keeping my conscious mind out of the mix that, and the subconscious mind is like, yeah, this sounds the same. <laughs> um, so I make funny mistakes that way. Um, and I don't always catch those on revision. Well, in, in so, you know, like many cases, the, like with Orchid's Rome, when I'm finishing the book, I don't even go back, really. Sometimes I might have gone back to tweak some section or layer something in, but I don't, you know, if I'm coming up on deadline, I don't do an exhaustive revision. Coming out front here, oh, there's Jackson. Oh, he's stalking Quail this morning. Quail is wise to him, though. They have their second batch of chicks. Oh, there they went too. Oh, they're big now. If you heard that whirring sound, that was their wings as they go. They make a really startling uh, sound as they fly off. It confuses the predators, like Jackson, who's now sitting down in the damp weeds, looking confused. <laughs> it rained all night, so we have a damp morning again, so I'll be out front. That's it, because... Uh, the pack rat is the pack rat may be living on uh, borrowed time at this point. David went out in the backyard the other day and came in ranting because his shoes were entirely full of choya burrs. Uh, the pack rat's been putting them everywhere, so I may not be able to protect it for much longer. <clears throat> so anyway, there are things to fix on the line edits. So I started going through the document yesterday with the plan of, okay, I'll start there. I'll go through and make Jenny's little line edit fixes and then go back to the beginning. You know, and that'll help get my head back in the story. And then I'll go back to the beginning and start, you know, 
working my way through the revision. And I'll pause here to note that when I revise, partly because of my method, which is, you know, people love the word pantser. I don't love it, but it's the one everyone knows. <clears throat> um, I think of it as right for discovery or a mister or a gardener, as George R. R. Martin calls it. But regardless, this is a... When I start the book, I don't know all the things I know by the time I finish it. So, And at the end, there's a fairly big reveal. And I'd known all along that there was some kind of secret that my heroine was keeping, but she hadn't told it to me yet. And so... A lot of Jenny's comments had to do with, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't understand how this was working or this doesn't really make sense with, this was in the edit letter, you know, you know this happens at the end, not and all, but like, oh yeah, because I didn't know that yet. So, you know, that's fairly simple layering in of things, but, um, so, I thought, okay, well, I knew all this. I know that most of my revision work is going to be in the first 100 pages. So I start going through Jenny's line edits. And, you know, first of all, they're so good. I mean, she's amazing. But it's like everything that's in her edit letter is also in the document, which is fantastic. But it was like, no, this is no, there will be no cruising through the uh, line edits too <laughs> and and knocking those out because a lot of them were things and like major plot points uh, yeah there's one scene I was complaining to my friend Kelly Robson on text or on chat that uh She, <laughs> there's this one scene. So, see what happened was with Orchid Throne, we, I wrote like the first fifty pages. Sarah looked at it. Her interns looked at it. That's my tea being done brewing. And then we went. Sorry, went back and forth several times. And when we sold it to St. Martin's, we sold it on. Oh, I don't know, like the first 30,000 words, something like that. And there was one scene that's kind of an important scene um, from the hero's point of view early on. And it has to do with important things like magic and what he's looking for and what his overall purpose is. (laughs) Very important things for Act 1. And... I kind of had a lot of fun with this scene, and Sarah had egged me on in a way. I'm totally blaming Agent Sarah for this, because she's like, oh, this is so interesting. Can you expand on this? So it all has to do with, you know, like the magic system, and, you know, there's, there's just kind of cool things that happen in this scene, right? And, you know, I mean, almost this was like a, uh, I hate to put it this way, but I'm going to. You know, it was almost like a marketing gimmick. It was like, see all of the cool things this book could be? Um, and it worked, you know, because we sold it. <laughs> so, but Jenny really commented on this scene. And I had noticed when I had picked it up again and written the rest of the book 
that there were things that really just didn't quite fit. And but I I bailed on dealing with it. Partly because it was the part that was already written and I didn't want to have to deal with it because I'm a horrible, bad and lazy writer and deserve no cookies. So on this time around Jenny really noted a lot of stuff in this scene, you know, saying things like, well, I don't understand why he says this, if this is true, and why did this happen, and how does this match up with the rest of the magic system? <laughs> All excellent questions, uh, with the short answer being that they probably just don't. First sip of coffee. Before that was water, if you heard me sipping. Mmm. Not coffee, London fog. Super yummy. I got, um, I don't know if I told you guys, but I bought some bulk Earl Grey tea from Harney and Sons because I, I think I mentioned that yesterday. I am Amy from since last Christmas, at least as far as tea is concerned. I'm certainly not her as far as being an amazing runner girl is concerned. I only wish. My runs, in the, I do run in the morning and often before light, but um, nothing like what we could do. That was entirely wish fulfillment, which is one of the fun things about writing, is I could make Amy have some aspects of me, and then I could give her the aspects that I only wished I had. Hang on. She's also really skinny, which she needs to be to design fashion. Or she doesn't need to be, but it tends to go along in the industry so uh, Amy got those things too and obsessiveness with tea so yeah now I've been brewing my Earl Grey loose leaf and um, instead of the tea bags and it's, it's even yummier so anyway with this scene I think the upshot is that I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to cut it <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to have to cut a lot of it. And it's too bad because there are cool things in it, but it doesn't match what eventually occurs. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to think about it. I'm going to have to... Uh, yeah, there's definitely some key things in there that I'm either going to have to justify or... And I think this is part of when writers say things like, you have to kill your darlings. Um, it, it's not always good advice because I've had people say that if I particularly, you know, I had one writer friend who said, oh, you know, if you really, if there's a thing in your book that you really love, a core image, because we argued about some book once where she was saying she didn't think something worked, and I said, well, I want to try to make it work because that was my core image for this story to begin with. I mean, that's one of the, the key elements of this particular story for me. And she said, uh, and she said, well, you know, that she had read somewhere that that meant you should cut it. That you should, if there's something that's like, that you view as being your key element or core image that that means you should get rid of it and I was kind of horrified that she said that I was like where did you 
where did you read that? And she's like, oh, it's, she's, you know, that's a, a well-known thing, which, you know, to me is always a red flag as soon as somebody says something like, oh, well, everybody knows that, or that's well-known, then you know it's urban myth, you know, that's just this thing that's been passed around because nobody knows exactly where it came from. It's just sort of repeated. So, sorry, I, I got off on a little rant there. I apologize. <laughs> um, and now I lost my train of thought. What was I saying about, um, oh, killing your darlings. Yes, thank you. Um, Sometimes people will interpret that as if there is something you love, um, then you must kill it, just like my friend was saying. And I think that's a real misinterpretation. Um, what it means is, is that you, have, you can't refuse to kill part of your book only because you love it. And, and that's usually what it comes down to is that, you know, in this scene where I think there's some super cool, neat things in there, I don't get to keep it just because they're super cool, neat things. That's a good reason to keep them. I definitely don't get to keep keep them for the primary reason I want to, which is that I spend a whole lot of time working on it. <laughs> um, and a lot of writers go through that. And I'm sure uh, any of you who are newbie writers, you know, you go through that a whole lot because especially when you're new, you spend a freakishly long time working on things and you know, people talk about that, you know, like they've, you know, entire novels that they've, I think Dorinda says she has something, she may have said in that podcast when we talked, uh, something like 10 or 15 novels that never will see the light of day, you know, that are metaphorically under the bed, or it used to be literally under the bed. People used to have stacks of manuscripts right back in the day, uh, or in the trunk, the trunk books, you know, your big wooden trunk of manuscripts that somebody then finds in a dusty attic someday and you're sorry because then they pull a um, oops, no I'm not going to be able to think of her name the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird anyway, they pull that on you and publish this manuscript that you really never wanted anybody to read you know, there, there's this idea that everything you write is somehow precious and interesting you know, and really sometimes it's just garbage. You know, it's the the mud. Um, I don't, I'll, I'll mention it. You know, and I'm sorry if these things get repetitive, but I think it's better to say things, repeat things than leave them out. You know, there's this whole idea of, especially when you're a beginning writer, this idea that you need to write a million words. And unfortunately, I think it's probably pretty accurate. Uh, you certainly have to write a whole lot of words. And I think that I probably came pretty close to writing a million words uh, before it started to get good. And um, and Patchett has the great analogy, and I think she borrowed it from someone else, but that it's like running water through pipes. And that when you first start writing, you're putting the water through these pipes that have never been used, and you get all kinds of crappy stuff coming out. You know, it's full of rust, and it's full of mud, and, you know, like, I don't know, dead pack rats, <laughs> and all kinds of crap. And you just have to keep running the water through there. And eventually, the pipe clears out, 
and so more water can go through and it goes through faster and it comes out clean and bright and I think it's a an excellent metaphor for learning how to write and especially uh, when you're first starting out you get a lot of that rusty muddy dead pack rat water and you're just going to have to you know put it down the sewer you know what you know, if you want, you can use it as compost. Uh, I certainly save all of my outtake files, and you know sometimes I raid those for things. Um, I have cannibalized stuff a number of times and moved it into other forms. Uh, so yeah, certainly use all of that to to fertilize your garden. We're now mixing our metaphors, but um, but that's why people say you have to kill your darlings is that sometimes you might think well that was a year of my life that was five years of my life that was a whole bunch of effort and I don't want it to be wasted and so here's the thing the thing is is it's not wasted we tend to think that way in this culture I think because if you don't have something tangible if it didn't like if it's like not something that's part of the industrial complex if you don't have a book if you don't have a paycheck if you don't have um, a stack of paper under your bed which we don't anymore right Um, if you don't have these things then somehow that effort has disappeared without creating anything and that's not true Uh, it may have not made a thing but the efforts not wasted because you learned from it and it was something that you had to go through and I've certainly have friends who you know have been writing for a long time and are very successful authors who will say oh you know I wrote 25,000 words that I'm not going to use and you know and we'll grimace and drink our margaritas over it but and then we'll say well you know guess you had to write that to figure these things out and they're like yep I guess I couldn't get from here to there without writing all of that and then then it's just going to go in the file folder or into the ether or into the compost so that's how I'm looking at this scene I'm going to wait till I get to it uh, but I suspect from looking at Jenny's comments and the way I was thinking about it, I was thinking at this point the scene is nonsense. It's it's sexy, cool nonsense. It would be whatever the, uh, you know how like there's sometimes the scenes in the movie, I don't know, the, like the montage. You know, sometimes there's just a scene in a movie where the characters go do some kind of sexy, cool thing and it's really neat to look at. And then later you're thinking that scene had absolutely nothing to do with the story, <laughs> but it was sexy, cool. A lot of times those end up in the trailer, you know, like you see some sexy, cool thing in the trailer and then it's not in the movie at all. This is why. It's because they thought, oh, this would be the sexy, cool thing to do. And it was an early part of the movie and they put it in the trailer. And then when it gets to production, when it gets to the cutting room and you have a really good, you know, so many editors, um, movies really benefit from oh I think the title is like production edit or something like that Um, people have talked about how uh, 
Star Wars, the first Star Wars episode four, um, became the movie that it was in the cutting room. Uh, because, and I don't remember her name, uh, which is unfortunate. And she's, she was, um, oh, I'm not to give any names this morning. The guy who made Star Wars. I'm thinking of Gene Roddenberry, which is obviously wrong. Yeah, you know who I mean. Um, it was his wife at the time, and they later divorced. But um, she's the one who did all of that splicing for that final battle at the end. It's it's fascinating article to read uh, that she was the one who really created that arc for Han Solo, that that was not there until she did in the cutting room. So my whole point is, is that... Uh, you know, like these sexy, cool things, you know, they get to the cutting room and you have a really good editor who's like, um, yeah, okay, this is cool, but it does nothing to move the story forward and I think we should ditch it. And so that's about where I'm at with this story. Why cannot, can't I think, oh, George Lucas, Jesus, okay, George Lucas, yes, thank you. I'm sure you were all, like, screaming at me. But, you know, it, this is the way my brain works. Gene Roddenberry begins with a G, and he wrote Star Trek. George Lucas did Star Wars. It begins with a G. They both have star. You're either you know, a Star Wars person or a Trekkie and all of these things. Anyway, yeah, George Lucas's wife, whose name I sadly can't remember. But um, you should look up that article on, you could probably Google it that way, on what she did to in the post-production to make episode four the movie that it became which is the work that i will be doing today a fine and noble job so i think i will get to it the sun is coming out here though it's supposed to be cool only a high of 66 today so that'll make for a lovely lovely working day i hope you all have a wonderful one too and thank you for sharing my first cup of the day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.